Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, April 3rd, 2023, and we we're on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebeck with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Iro, and this week we're covering a fish that I like to think of as the stone roller of the Pacific Northwest. It's the chisel mouth. Nice. We've got two great guests here. We've got Matthew Miller and Denny Lassie. Denny's got the unique claim to fame of doing his PhD dissertation on chisel mouth, and he currently lives in Portland, Oregon. And Matt's based in Idaho. He's an author and also a conservationist with the Nature Conservancy. And he's on a quest to catch a fish in each state. And he's caught this fish. So we're very excited to have both of you on. So welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. I'll admit the name is what piqued my interest when we were kind of going through our list and what we wanted to cover. So I'd really like to know what this fish looks like and does its mouth actually look like a chisel? Well, I can jump in on that, just standing here. The chisel mouth name fits very well because the bottom jaw is coalesced into a single cartilaginous ridge. It looks like a rubber spatula, except a little bit stiffer and a little bit sharper edge. And they use it to scrape their food off of the rocks on the bottom on the stream. So the name chisel mouth fits it very well. These guys' colors, yeah, they're kind of cryptic, it looks like. Yeah, well, they're quite beautiful. You know, I, you catch one in April or May. I find them a really gorgeous fish. You know, they have like these bright orange highlights. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's really neat. They get this orangish hue to the fins, basically along the side and along the bottom. The pectorals, pelvic, and anal fins give it a bit of orange. And even okay. the head gets a little hint of orange in it. Okay, cool. Matt, if you had one of these in your hand, how would you describe your reaction to it when you see it? Some people, you know, superficially, they resemble other fish you might see in a stream, but that mouth really stands out. Yeah, it's called a subterminal mouth. It's not on the bottom like on a sucker, and it's not on the end of the mouth like a bass or many other fish species. So it's slightly below the front and slightly downward pointing, which is ideal for them when they rush the rocks on the bottom to scrape the algae and other materials off the bottom. I think like fish mouths are so cool. It's kind of like bird beaks. You can really deduce a lot about the animal and what it eats and kind of where it lives. Just looking at the mouth, like you mentioned, a bunch of different species there. But yeah, the mouth is always something to really kind of key in when you catch a fish and you can start thinking about what it likes and where it lives. So that's cool. Yeah, cool. And this one, the mouth gave the whole fish its name. So I made the comparison with the stone roller, which is a species we have down here in the southeast that... Until recently, until we had a guest on talking about this fish, I always thought of them as being herbivorous, but it turns out that they're eating sort of the offwooks, that whole community down there on the bottom. So what do we know about the feeding of the chisel mouth and what it's actually eating? Is it actually eating the filamentous algae, or is that just a way to get some of those other nutrient sources? Oh, you used one of my favorite words. Otherwise called paraphyton or biofilm or phytobenthos. But I like alfooks. It's just a cool word. Anyway, it's that small algae that grows tight to the rocks, along with a bit of other stuff that's kind of stuck in it, like detritus and occasionally some animal material. I can speak directly to your question about what do they eat and can they digest it. Haven't had a whole lot of published work on it. There was a paper way back in the 60s by a prof and student up in British Columbia 
that did some sort of preliminary look at the diet and some of the behaviors of chisel mouth, they concluded, based on a little bit of analysis of the gut contents, that they primarily got their nutrition out of diatoms and that they did eat a lot of the filamentous green algae, but they concluded that they couldn't digest it because they saw lots of stringy cellulose and fiber at the tail end of the gut. But when I did my own study here, I did pretty much all of my work in the Willamette River because it runs right by Corvallis, that's where Oregon State University is, where I did my dissertation work. So I collected samples every month throughout the entire year, so I got a seasonal look at them. But then I also took them into the laboratory and looked at their digestion, their assimilation efficiency. And in general, I think the work of the folks in British Columbia, Moody and Lindsay, was correct. They do get the bulk of their nutrition from diatoms. And real quick, what are diatoms? <laughs> they are, for the most part, tiny little plants that have a shell sort of structure around them. And they can either grow individually or on stalks. And a lot of times when you look at a rock and you see not really a slime, but a slick layer on top of it, that's mostly diatoms. Sometimes there's some cyanobacteria or blue-green algae mixed in there, and sometimes some filamentous green algae mixed in there. But the bulk of that stuff that's on the surface of rocks is usually diatoms. We've got the pike minnow, another cyprinid. You've got the pea mouth chub. Those guys are more like planktivorous. And these guys are pretty unique, correct, in terms of this like feeding ecology? Yes, they are. I did my master's work out in Micronesia where there were lots and lots of herbivorous coral reef fish. And then when I got to Oregon up in a temperate freshwater setting, there were very few fish known for herbivory. Herbivory meaning grazing, plant eating. So yeah, that's really why I chose chisel mouth because I had done previous studies of algae eating fish in a tropical coral reef environment. And here, the only one I could find to study in the freshwater environment that I was around was the chisel mouth. So that's kind of how it by default became my subject species because it is pretty much unique in the Pacific Northwest anyway. Yeah. After doing a master's in Micronesia, I don't know what I'd think about coming back to the Willamette Valley to do research for a PhD. I really owe my interest in and my ability to do the study on chisel mouth to a wonderful professor, Dr. Hiram Lee at Oregon State, who allowed me to work on something that was not a salmon or a trout, although they're beloved species and important to the Northwest. But I was able to study because Dr. Hiram Lee let me do it. He allowed me to work on something that was not a salmonid and something other than fish behavior that had something directly to do with how to catch them. Go hire him. Matt, how in the heck are you catching a fish that has that kind of feeding behavior? And is there a certain time of year when they're keyed into different things? Or I'm just kind of curious about that whole fishing scene around these. Yeah, and it's a question I get a lot because I love targeting different species of fish, and I often host others who love targeting more unusual species. And so when they come, they say, like, how are we going to catch these chisel mouth? Do we have to put algae on a hoof? Well, it turns out they're actually quite aggressive feeders, especially from the April to June time period. And 
you know, red worms, a small bit of nightcrawler, maggots, or even flies, they will hit very aggressively. And, you know, I like to target them in riffles of smaller rivers, and it can be one after the other when they're in the feeding mood. These guys have a cool ecology, and I think it's probably like a kind of an underappreciated fish, I would guess. I mean, I didn't know about it, and I'm not, I guess, a good judge all the time. But I'm curious, Matt and Guy and Denny, too, do you guys have kind of a first fishing story or a favorite fishing story about catching one of these and what you thought the first time you kind of held one of them? Well, I'll let the two guys who know what they're talking about in terms of fishing address that, (laughs) because I'm embarrassed to say, even though I studied this fish for years, I have never caught one and I have never eaten one. And that's sacrilege. I need to do both. (laughs) Well, fish for them, it's just that you've electrofished for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. That's on my to-do list then. Where I did my master's out in Micronesia, it was every student had to eat their subject species. That was fine for me because I worked on damselfish, but for the folks who worked on snails and sea cucumbers and things like that, it was a little different. Yeah. Yeah, well, I've been a trout angler and a fly fisherman, you know, most of my life. And at the same time, I write about biodiversity. And at a certain point, I started thinking, like, you know, I know the birds, I know the mammals and the herps, but I've spent all this time on creeks and rivers, and I don't even know the freshwater biodiversity in these waters. And so I started exploring them. And I noticed suckers, large-scale suckers, in a lot of the local creeks. And so I started targeting them. And one of the first evenings I was out after suckers, all of a sudden I reel in the chisel mouth. And I had studied up on what I might catch, and I saw that mouth. And I thought, like, wow, this cool fish has been in this water that I have fished with a fly rod for years and I never even knew it was here. And what I found out is most anglers, even those who consider themselves naturalists, it is this completely invisible world to them. Like, so many of the fish are out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. Guy, I know you like the stone rollers a lot. What was your first experience like catching one of these? I was trying to catch northern pike minnow. So I went to the Burnt River, which is a spot where I caught northern pike minnow before. This was for the cross-country fishing challenge that a buddy of mine from Ohio puts on. I was going out there and, you know, catching smallmouth, catching a few northern pike minnow. And I brought up this one fish that looked like it had the same color scheme as the northern pike minnow, which is to say brassy. And it looked like it had like a truncated face. And I, before I got a good look at it, it flopped away, got back in the water. I'm like, okay, maybe that was some mutated form. Maybe it got kind of pecked by a bird or something. I don't know. So I kept fishing and I caught another one. I took a lot of good pictures to make sure that I could ID it when I got back to the car. Cause it was clearly a different species that had that definite ridge. Like you say, the mouth is just so prominent. It's, it's actually kind of a funny looking shape. It stood out. And then I was walking back to the car. And I remember talking to someone about northern pike minnow and how they can sometimes hybridize with something called a chisel mouth which is a fish i'd never seen before i'm like ah no that sounds right and sure enough that's what it was so it's very cool to get that. and i caught that on artificial you know it's really like a split shot with a hook with a piece of like rubber worm on there and basically just mm-hmm. using an ultralight to tight line sort of nymph down the stream so i was going to ask you both since they feed on the bottom except in the juvenile stage did you catch them fishing near the bottom or up in the water column? 
I do tend to catch them fishing on the bottom, although I've found sometimes I'll just cast out an ultralight with a split shot and a little piece of red worm, and they will hit it like right before it hits the bottom, mm. like on the yeah. downward drop. Now, my son, who is eight, he uses a tenkara rod with a maggot, and he catches red side shiners with them, and sometimes the chisel mouths, and these are small ones, but they'll be mixed in. And they will hit that maggot, you know, kind of mid-level water column. But most of the bigger ones that I've caught and that I've brought friends to catch have been right on the bottom. And what's That's a big cool. chisel mouth? <laughs> a big chisel mouth will be 12, 13 inches long. 13 inches is a huge chisel mouth. Okay. And weighing roughly, the biggest one, roughly about a pound, maybe a hair over a pound. Okay. I think I was catching them around like eight inches or so. One other interesting thing, when I look at the otoliths, the oldest of them get to over 22 years old. So almost triple the known age of these chisel mouths. So you're not fishing on a short-lived species when you're fishing for chis. Chis. I call them chis. Matt, I know you mentioned kind of placement in the water column. Is there anything with how you cast or how you retrieve that's helpful? You know, I do not like to let my worms sit for a really long time when I'm targeting them. They're going to be on your bait pretty quickly. You know, it's interesting targeting Western species. There are some that are quite difficult to catch, like the bridgelet sucker, which I also mm. find in some of the same waters. I might catch one of them like every three years. But the chiselmouth, if they are feeding, you know, they're very aggressive. So it is not one of those fish where it takes an inordinate amount of patience. But like any fish, you know, there are times when it's better than others. Yeah, it's interesting that you had mentioned the April to June timeline because that's basically when they're building up to spawning. Their fat content, they're nice and healthy right up until about June. And then you start seeing their ovaries and testes mature and then the fat content just dives mm -hmm. back down to like less than half of the body fat that they normally would have. So yeah, I actually found kind of a mix of a little bit of animal material and detritus in those months, along with, of course, the algae and the diatoms. But right after spawning, when their body fat was depleted, they tended to eat instead of zero or 1%, there might've been 10 to 15% animal material in their guts. And it suggests there was some intent to it because the fat content rocketed right back up to normal levels. I pulled the otoliths, the ear stones, out of these fish from every month of the year. And you could see from the otoliths that the fastest growth in this fish was mostly like July, August, September, into early October. Mm -hmm. So the best growth coincides with the most concentrated effort to feed on diatoms. Yeah. This may have been in your work that I read this, that as juveniles, they're more prone to eat insects and animal material. Is that an adaptation to be able to grow faster, stronger, bigger, to maybe get out of the size range for some of these northern pike meadows or something? Or what's the thinking about why they're eating that when they're young and then switch over to plant-based material as adults? Yeah, that that's a really good observation. And it may very well be that it does help them do that. But I think nutritionally, it's simply... They don't have the gut 
capacity. They don't have the gut length and they don't have the biology internally to be able to digest the algae yet. They have a relatively short gut compared to the length of the fish, whereas in the adults, it's three times the length of the fish. So they have a lot longer, skinnier gut to be able to absorb that. And the other thing is these guys, like some other saprin and some other of the carbon minnow family fishes, they don't really have much in the way of a tooth structure, obviously with the chisel on the lower jaw, but they do have what's called a pharyngeal mill or sort of like throat teeth or throat grinders. It's kind of like your Starbucks barista machine where you run the beans through a grinder, grind it all up. In the throat of the chisel mouth, they have these plates that grind the food up and and then it goes down into that long skinny gut and gets absorbed that way. We asked earlier about filamentous algae, whether they digest that. That work that was originally done up in British Columbia suggested that they couldn't, but I found from the laboratory studies, they actually can digest a significant amount of the filamentous green algae. Like most fish, they can't digest cellulose, you know, the fiber part, but because that pharyngeal mill, those throat grinders are so effective, it smushes the cells and releases the content. So they actually can digest quite a bit of it. Not as much as they can of the diatoms. The diatoms are definitely the preferred food source and the bulk of their diet. What's the range of these fish? Like if I'm going to go fish for them, what are the different areas I'd be able to catch one? They're found pretty much solely in the Columbia River Basin and the Fraser River Basin. And then in Oregon, the Harney Basin, Malheur River, that area. It sounds like Matt has caught a few in, in some of the eastern Oregon and upper Columbia, Idaho tribs. Yeah, I, I'm mainly targeting tributaries of the Boise River, which in turn is a tributary of the Snake River. So, Matt... You're saying that you prefer to fish smaller rivers for chisel mouth. Is there any particular reason for that? Can you find these in bigger rivers? I think I was seeing that Denny's work was done in the Willamette. I mean, that's a pretty big river. Yes. So I think partly it's just personal preference. I like small streams and rivers. But also, when you get into a river like the Snake in Idaho, you start running into the invasive question. It, you know, it's very big water, and so targeting that, like, perfect habitat niche is difficult. And I do catch pike minnows quite a bit in the Snake River, but a lot of times smallmouth bass, if you're using a worm or a fly, are going to beat anything else to it. And, you know, it, it's funny because sometimes these fish we consider game species, you know, we think of them as being so challenging, but I've found... That a lot of times it's because they're so aggressive. That's why they're the preferred target. And so if there's smallmouth bass in the river, it's going to be the chisel mouth that whatever you're using. Yeah. There there was a study of habitat preference of chisel mouth done in British Columbia, and it did confirm that they tend to be in relatively larger rivers. I think they found for the most part, this, that the rivers had to be more than 35, 40 feet wide at least to be attractive. Of course, that's under British Columbia conditions, so the water was probably a bit colder. The Chisholmouth are definitely a warmer water species than a lot of the freshwater fish in the North Pacific Northwest. 
that you tend not to find them in a stream unless that stream or river gets up to say 70 ish or so in the summer. Okay. And how are these fish doing? They have any threats facing them or are they doing okay? I'm a bit worried in the long run, particularly as the water's warm with climate change, because the adults, as far as we know, spawn kind of near the mouths of cribs and the juveniles rear in some of the slower water, backwater areas, which are also the areas where a lot of the introduced species, bass, crappie, that sort of thing, tend to hang out. And so I'm a little bit worried in the long run about their stability and particularly the success of the juveniles. But right now, they seem to be in, you know, in pretty fair numbers. I think something Denny kind of hinted at earlier is worth noting, and he mentioned that he was able to do his PhD work on something that wasn't a salmonid. And I think there needs to be a lot more research on fish that aren't salmonids. And I love trout and salmon. But there are a lot of other fish in Western U.S. and Canadian waters. And, yes. you know, a lot of things about these fish we just simply don't know. And a lot of times it seems like it's, yeah, a lot of people eat salmon, a lot of people fish for trout. These guys, were they historically important to any, like, indigenous communities out there? Do you know? I did find one reference to the Nez Perce using them as a food source. Yeah. Matt, I've got a question about your fishing quest that you're on. I think you've hit 35, right, at the time of this recording? I have. Are you targeting, like, endemic fishes to each state, or kind of what's your strategy, and how does Chiselmouth rank on your favorite fish list of what you've caught so far with that quest? Yeah, so I, yeah, I'm i trying to have some kind of conservation or natural history story attached to each, but... Also, try not to stress too much about it. So I was passing through Delaware recently and saw a river, and so I pulled over and fished. I caught bluegills, and, yeah. you know, it was a cold January day, and I was completely happy with that. Yeah. The main thing is to get out fishing wherever I am. I'm going to okay. try for Bartram's Bass in South Carolina in May, so that, that would be the next one. But partly it is that discovering freshwater biodiversity. Of course, one of the things I find is that, you know, invasive species are such a part of our freshwater systems. I mean, it's sometimes difficult not to find the same few species. And, you know, the chisel mouth is local for me. I've helped other anglers who keep lifeless and who also are doing similar quests, like trying to catch a fish in every state, catch their wifer chisel mouth. I think I've hosted 15 lifeless anglers cool. at my local water for chisel mouth, and That's 14 cool. of them have caught it. Last summer <laughs> nice. was a really difficult year for them, for whatever reason. The Idaho Fishing Games Genetics Lab even asked me to keep fin samples because they were trying to document hybridization with pike minnows, but I caught only two all mm -hmm. summer, which is, you know, I, I've caught 15 to 20 in a single outing in previous years. So Dang. I think partly it was just because our water, we had a late snow melt. And so the creeks were just unfishable for much of the season. What does that term lifer mean? I see that mm -hmm. a lot in these kind of micro fishing life listings, but I don't know exactly what the definition is and I haven't found a good one. What is it? 
Yeah, so very similar to birding. You know, birders keep a list of species they've seen, and there is a very you know sub niche of <laughs> anglers who keep a list of species they've caught. So a lifer is a new species to add to the list, and I do keep a list of species caught. I'm not as fanatic about it as some. There is one guy who has now over 2,000 species. And to catch 2,000 species of fish requires a level of insanity that is uh, hard to comprehend. And if you're fanatic about it, it only counts if it was caught in its native range. Oh, dang. I mean, that's a real lifer. If you had one thing you'd want to tell people to like motivate them to care about this fish, what would it be? Well, for me, it would be a combination of just simply appreciating it for what it is, you know, a really neat, unique native species, but also its importance in the ecosystem as that intermediary link between the production of food at the algal level and the predators that everybody usually wants to go fish for. So both their ecological role and simply their uniqueness as a cool native fish. Awesome. How about you, Matt? Yeah, I think... For me, fishing is a way to see what's in our rivers, but there are many ways to do that. And, you know, as far as vertebrates, we often think we know fish, but I think we know them so little. And Mm -hmm. there are all these fascinating fish swimming around, often places where we're recreating, and we just don't know them. And for me, finding the chisel mouth and you know, kind of getting to know it in my way has been one way where I've realized that these rivers I've spent time along for more than 20 years are so much richer than I ever imagined. There you go. Well, cool. Thank you, guys. This has been a very fascinating conversation. Appreciate it. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me, and thanks for the interest in Chisel Mouth. Go Chis. <laughs> um, thank you for having me and for your interest in all these great freshwater fishes. Yeah. So get out there and enjoy all the fish. Go find your chisel mouth or your stone roller or any other special native freshwater fish in your area. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebeck and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Race Car. Produced and story edited by Tasha A.F. Lemley. Production management by Gabriella Montequin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Regional Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish. Fish.